0: I think all of us would agree that we are living perilous times. In fact, it's accelerating very, very quickly before our eyes. A man by the name of Stephen Mintz from the University of Texas, who's a historian, said the following, and I quote, I've thought a lot about where we are headed as a society. It seems things are getting worse in so many areas that I wonder whether civility can even be regained. I'm using the word civility in a broad sense, not only to mean good manners, kindness, and empathy, but how we treat others in a variety of circumstances, end quote. And I don't know if this gentleman is a believer, but he acknowledges the fact that we are living in perilous times. And here's the question that I want to answer this morning, and that is this, how should Christians live in light of the times that we're living in? turn, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 1. We want to look this morning at verses 10 all the way to chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and it's amazing how God providentially allows us to deal with subjects that are relevant to our times. We are going through the book of verse Peter, and we find ourselves in this section. Now, remember, Peter was writing to a group of beleaguered Christians who were being persecuted for their faith. In chapter 1, verse 1, he wrote to Christians that were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And many of the persecutions that happened were probably local, although some commentators believe that Nero had launched an empire-wide persecution and basically blamed the Christians for the burning down of Rome. And so Peter is writing to a group of Christians who are living in this type of hostile environment, They were experiencing persecution. The culture in which the Christians lived was extremely corrupt. And in fact, if you read chapter 4, there was a lot of rioting going on. Is that not relevant for our day and time now? And so Peter here writes to remind the Christians in verse 10 all the way to chapter 2 how they are to live in light of the times. Now in verses 1 through 12, Peter in the Greek uses what we call in Greek an indicative mode. An indicative mode is a statement of fact. In other words, he talks about our salvation, and he just gives statement after statement about our salvation. But beginning in verse 13, he's going to go into what theologians call the imperative mode. The imperative mode is here's what you're to do. The indicative mode says this is what God has done for you, The imperative mode says, here is how you are to live in light of what God has done for you. And so how should we live, brothers and sisters? We are living in perilous times. We see what's going on in our culture, and there's a lot of stuff going on in social media. There's a lot of stuff being portrayed on television. How does God want his people to live? Well, there's five responses in this section of scripture that you and I are to have as Christians. First of all, We're to lift up praise to God for our salvation. We are to lift up praise to God for our salvation. Now, in verses 1 through 12, which John looked at, what Peter talked about there was our salvation and how we are to bless God and praise Him for our salvation. For example, in verse 3 of chapter 1, Peter says this, blessed, see there's the word praise, Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. We're to bless God and praise him for our salvation. Verse 6, in this, in this what? Your salvation, greatly rejoice. He says we're to praise God, we're to bless God for the salvation that he's given us. And notice in verses 10 through 12, he's going to talk about this salvation that we're to praise God for. And he says in verse 10, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. In these things which now have been announced to you... Through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. What Peter is saying there is this in the Old Testament, prophets, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, made certain predictions or certain prophecies, and those prophecies related to the person of Jesus Christ. And what they did was when they wrote their prophecies down under the inspiration of the Spirit, They studied those prophecies to try to figure out how it related to Christ. They wanted to know the specifics. In fact, look at the diagram here. You'll notice that when the prophets would prophesy, they saw only one coming of Christ. They did not see two comings of Christ. We're living right now in this time gap called the church age. And so, when they made their predictions about Jesus Christ, they thought... There was one coming and they tried to figure out what would be involved in Jesus' coming, his death, his resurrection, his future glory. They didn't understand the prophecies that they looked at and that were given to them by God. All they knew, according to Peter, was that they were serving a future generation. And that's why they studied them. And by the way, he says, angels long to look into this salvation, why? because angels can't be saved. They cannot be redeemed. And so they look and they observe those of us who are born again with fascination because they cannot be redeemed. And so Peter is saying here, you know how great your salvation is? Your salvation is so great that the prophets would actually study their own prophecies to try to figure out about the coming of Christ. They didn't see two comings. Now we look back and we see that there are two comings. They saw one coming. They didn't see the church age. And Peter is saying, our salvation is so great that the prophets studied their own prophecies and angels longed to look into the salvation that you and I possess. And here's his point. We need to bless God for our salvation. We need to praise God for our salvation. And I don't know about you, but that brings me a modicum of joy and comfort, especially when you look at the times that we're living in now. One of the things that gives me security is knowing that if all hell breaks loose around us, I know that I have a secure salvation with God. And when Peter talks about salvation here, he's not talking about just you being saved in the present, he's talking about our future salvation when Jesus Christ is gonna redeem us. And that brings joy to our life. And so we need to regularly lift up praises to God. I went to the hospital this week, as I do every Tuesday, to visit people, and I use it as an opportunity to share my faith. And as I was walking from room to room, I had this overwhelming sense of joy in my heart, because even though I was in the midst of sickness and death and what's going on in our society today, just like in Peter's day, all hell was breaking loose, I had a sense of joy because I knew that I was secure in Jesus Christ. I knew where I was going. If I die, I don't fear death because I know I'm going to be ushered into the presence of God where there will be absolute felicity and joy. And so we need to praise the Lord on a regular basis. And so get your eyes off society. I'm not saying we don't engage society. I'm not saying we don't read up on what's going on. But in the midst of all the chaos, in the midst of the uncertainty, in the midst of the fear, we have to lift up praise to God regularly for our salvation. And that's what Peter is telling those to whom he was writing to who were being persecuted, he says, bless God for your salvation. There was a woman who, one of the things she loved to do, she was an elderly woman, she would love to say praise the Lord on a regular basis during the church service, and especially when the pastor preached. She would always say, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Well, pastor got irritated by her doing this all the time, and so he went and he talked to her, and in order to get her to stop saying that all the time, he said, here's what I'll do. He knew that she had benevolent needs, and so he said, I will give you food from our benevolent fund every month if you'll stop saying praise the Lord. Well, she was in need, and she agreed to his terms. Well, weeks went by, and she restrained herself during the service from saying praise the Lord. Finally, one Sunday, the pastor was preaching on salvation and forgiveness and all the blessings of that, and she couldn't contain herself. And so right in the middle of that, she stood up and said, groceries or no groceries, she said, praise the Lord. (laughs) And listen, we need to praise God on a regular basis because you know what that does? It helps us to keep our focus on the positive. It helps us to keep our focus on who God is rather than what's going on in our circumstances. And so we need to lift up praise to God for our salvation. There's a second thing that you and I need to do is we need to look for the coming of Christ. We need to look for the coming of Christ in light of what's going on. Notice if you will verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now he's talking here about hope, that refers to the second coming, Titus 2 is the blessed hope. And he says the revelation of Jesus Christ, he's talking there about the second coming. And he's saying, in light of your circumstances, I want you to fix your focus fully on the return of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter actually believed that Jesus was going to come back at any moment within his lifetime. That was the early expectation of the early church. In fact, if you notice on the screen, 1 Peter 4, 7, here is what Peter said to the people the end of all things is near. Peter was anticipating that Jesus Christ was going to come back because Nero was burning Christians, using them to light his house parties. And so he felt the end is near. And he says, get your focus on the return of Jesus Christ. Now, in light of what's going on in our culture now, I've been on Facebook Live, I've been interacting with people, John has too, one of the questions that I get asked is, Are we towards the end? Is Jesus Christ coming back at any moment? My answer to that is, I don't believe it's going to happen right now. Now, the rapture is imminent. The rapture can happen at any moment. There are no signs that need to be fulfilled for the rapture to take place. It is a signless event. However, the second coming of Christ, when he comes back to establish his kingdom, there are certain signs that need to take place in order for that to happen. And so my response to that is this, we are beginning to see pieces of the puzzle come together, pieces of the pie that is pointing towards the rapture and the imminent return of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not a prophet and I can't give you dates, but I can tell you this, we are moving towards globalism and we are moving towards a cashless society. We see a lot of the structures in our culture being upended. And I believe there is going to be eventually a new world order that's going to be established, and that's all part of God using sinful men and Satan's schemes in order to bring about the second coming of Jesus Christ. But I believe we still have time. Now, when is the rapture going to happen? I don't know. Some people believe, I heard a guy this week say that he believes it's going to happen this fall. There's that pastor, Dana Covington, who's given prophecies. He said he had several dreams about what's going to happen this fall, and one of his friends came on YouTube and said he believes the reason there's going to be a lot of chaos is because the church is going to be raptured out, and that's why we're going to see chaos in the fall. Well, listen, I pray to God he's right. How many of you would like to be raptured out this fall? Amen. Now, I'm not making a prediction there. We don't know, but we are getting closer and closer. In fact, The Washington Post recently wrote an article, which I was surprised, and here is what the article's title was. This is not the end of the world according to Christians who study the end of the world. This was in the Washington Post. And here is what the article said, quote, Chuck Pierce's son was concerned like a lot of other people looking out on a world of ransacked grocery stores, canceled sports seasons, and eerie lines of people standing six feet apart from one another. So this boy asked his dad, is this the end of the world? That's a question you can ask when you have a dad who calls himself an apostolic prophet and leads a prophetic ministry. No, said Pierce, who is based in Corinth, Texas. The Lord shown me through 2026, so I know this isn't the end of time, end quote. Now, whether or not you agree with this particular man who claims to be a prophet of God that we're going to go beyond 2026, he said the Lord has shown him that it we're at least going up to that time. Who knows? A lot of stuff you're going to see, listen, whenever you see all of this prophetic stuff going on in society, you're going to get a lot of people that are going to come out of the woodwork saying this is going to happen this, this is going to happen this way, you're going to get a lot of fear-mongering. And so you got to weigh that, you got to be careful. But notice what Peter says, if we're going to be ready for the return of Christ, if we're going to look for his return, look what he says in verse 13. Here's how to do that. Here's how to be ready. He says, therefore, in verse 13, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit. Now notice the word there, prepare your minds to action. In the King James, that means gird up the loins of your minds. What does that mean? Well, you'll notice up on the screen back in ancient times when a person wanted to engage engage in hand-to-hand combat or they were in a hurry and they wanted to run, what they would do is on the left, you will notice that their uh, garment was all the way down to their knees. And in order to gird up your loins, what you would do is take the four corners of your tunic and you would cinch them up, and you would pull them through your belt, and you would make a mini tunic. And what that allowed was mobility. You were able, in hand-to-hand combat, to be able to move very swiftly or to run. And Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind. In other words, if you're gonna be ready for the return of Christ, pull together the loose ends of your mind, keep it focused on the return of Christ. Don't get hyper-focused on what's going on in our culture. Yes, we need to engage the culture. Yes, we need to engage in discussion. I'm not saying that we go into a cave and we retreat. But we need to discipline our thinking to focus on the return of Christ. And he says, be of sober spirit. What does he mean by that? Be alert. Don't get sucked into the culture. Don't get caught up into movements. Don't get caught up into the sinfulness of our age. We have to be alert to what's going on around us. Why? Because Satan is working overtime. And so how are Christians to live in light of the times? Well, first, we're to lift up praise to God for our salvation. Secondly, we're to look for the second coming of Jesus Christ. The rapture can happen at any moment. It is a signless event. The second coming, on the other hand, the Bible says there are certain signs that must happen for Jesus Christ to come back, and we're beginning to see some of those pieces being pulled together with globalism, with a cashless society, a new world order, I believe, that is coming. And so, listen, these are exciting times in which you and I are living. There's a third thing that you and I can do if we're going to live in such a way in light of the times, and that is live a life of holiness. Live a life of holiness. Notice, if you will, verses 14 through 21. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. But like the One, the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. If you address verse 17 as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God." Peter says the third response that you or I are to have in light of the times in which we're living in, we are to be living lives of holiness. Now, what is holiness? Holiness is not man-made rules whereby we conform legalistically to those rules. Holiness is simply walking in the power of the Holy Spirit and allowing the Spirit to produce His fruit in and through you. Holiness is conforming your life to the Word of God both externally and internally. Holiness is more than just outward behavior. It is a heart attitude. It is being cleansed on the inside. And that's what God calls us to do. He calls us to live in holiness. And you have to understand that is a dual effort. In other words, holiness is produced by the Holy Spirit. We cannot produce holiness in our own strength. However, We have a responsibility to pursue holiness. And so holiness is all of God, but it is also all of me. In fact, the word holy means to be set apart. It means to be sanctified. And so a Christian who's holy is someone who says, God, I'm not just interested in being a convert. I'm not just interested in being a fan of Christianity. And by the way, if persecution comes to America, you're going to see that whole fan base fall away. Because those who are disciples are the ones who are going to stand. And holiness means, God, I am choosing to set myself apart to follow you, and I'm going to be a disciple, not just a convert or not just a fan. There's a little weasel-like creature called an ermine. You ever heard of an ermine? They're very, very cute. And one of the things that they're noted for, they live in uh, Alaska. They also live in the northeast of the U.S., they are known for their pure white furs. And they live in this little hole. And trappers have interesting way of getting these little ermines, which are like little weasels. One of the things that they do is they go to their habitat or their little hole and they take black tar and they put it around the hole. And then they release the dogs on the ermines. And what happens is the ermines will run relentlessly towards their habitat in order to retreat to safety. But here's the thing that they know. The ermines do not want to soil their coat. They would rather be captured and killed than to go into that hole and end up blemishing their coat with tar. You see, to the ermine, purity is dearer than life. And that's what Christians are to do. They are to pursue a pure life. Now, why should I walk in holiness? Well, Peter here gives us four motivations as to why we're to walk in holiness. First of all, you used to walk in unholiness. That was your former life. Look at verse 14. As obedient children. Children imitate their parents, right? He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Don't go back to your old life. God delivered you out of that, so you used to walk in unholiness, that's why you're to walk in holiness now. Secondly, you're to walk in holiness because God is holy. Look at verse 15 and 16. But like the Holy One who called you, that is God, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, and he quotes Leviticus 19 here, you shall be holy for I am holy. If God is holy and we are his children, children imitate their parents. A third reason why we're to be holy, he says in verse 17, if you address as fathers the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Here's the third reason why we're to walk in holiness, you will be evaluated by God. Notice we come to God as Father in verse 17. He is our Papa, He is our Daddy, but we, me- we must not forget that we approach not only a loving Heavenly Father, but we approach a God who is holy, who is going to evaluate us on the day of judgment. Not for condemnation, but evaluation. He's going to evaluate whether or not you live for Him and you walk a holy life. That's why He says, conduct yourselves in fear during your time on this earth. That fear is reverence, it's not a cowering fear, it is a reverential attitude towards God. And then finally, he says walk in holiness because Jesus redeemed you from sin. Look at verses 18 through 21. Knowing that you were not redeemed, and that word redeemed means to buy back, you and I were slaves to sin, and God bought us out of the slave market of sin. He says you were not redeemed with perishable things, like silver or gold from your feudal way of life, inherited from your forefathers. But, verse 19, notice what you were redeemed with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ. He's saying, Look, you, don't, you want to live a holy life because God redeemed you out of an unholy life. And when God redeemed you, he didn't redeem you with gold, silver, and precious stones. He redeemed you by his blood. He paid a high price. And listen, when something is so valuable, you can determine the value of something by the price that is paid. In other words, if I see something as very valuable, I'm willing to pay a high price in order to get that. Do you remember the movie Taken? with Liam Neeson? Do you remember towards the end of the movie when they tied him up there and he's hanging from the rafters and he's about to have a showdown with him? And he said, that's my daughter in there. He says, give her to me. He said, I will pay whatever price you ask me. Why did he say that? Because his daughter was more valuable than anything and he was willing to pay a high price. Or take, for example, Elvis. We know he's an icon in our culture. Recently, his Bible was auctioned in Europe, and it sold for $94,000. Why? Because people see his Bible as being valuable because Elvis was an icon. And so, when something is valuable, you will pay a high price for that. And that's what Peter is saying here. You need to live a holy life. Why? Because Jesus delivered you and redeemed you from sin. And he paid the highest price in order to rescue us from the pit of hell. And notice what happened in verse 20. It says, speaking of Jesus, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? God chose Jesus before the foundation of the world to come to earth and to die on the cross. Do you realize that the cross was not plan B for God? It was plan A. God knew Adam and Eve was going to sin. And so God had preordained before the foundation of the world that Jesus would die on the cross for us, and it says here, but he has appeared in these last times, that's in Peter's day, for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And so Peter says, if you want to live in light of the times, he says, live a holy life. Live a separated life. Don't just be a convert to Christianity. This is the time That we're living in to get serious about your faith. Because you don't wanna stand before God and realize that most of your Christian life, you lived lukewarm Christianity. You straddled the fence. God wants disciples, He does not want fans. God doesn't want just weekend visitations, God wants full custody of your life. And why should you live holy? Peter gives us the four reasons why. You used to walk in unholiness. God is holy, therefore you and I are to be holy. You will be evaluated by God on the day of judgment, not for hell, but for reward, and Jesus redeemed you from a life of holiness. One of the ways that you show your gratitude for his redemption in your life is by living a holy life. We celebrate Thanksgiving. I like to call it thanks living. It's not just Thanksgiving verbally, it's thanks living. It's how I live my life that shows the gratitude for the redemption that Jesus Christ provided for me. Well, there's a fourth way that you and I are to live in light of the times, and that is we are to love others. We are to love others. Notice, if you will, verses 22 through 25. Peter says, Since you have in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, he says fervently love one another from the heart. Now, notice he says at salvation, you know what happened? A purging took place. God bleached your soul at salvation. He purified you. And he says, because God saved you, he says, fervently love one another. That word fervently is an interesting word in the Greek. It means to stretch yourself to the full extremity. It was used of horses running a race, and they would stretch themselves in the race. Why would Peter say that? Because, listen, it's hard to love some people. Now, listen, love comes natural to the Christian in one sense, as we're going to see, because God's love is in our heart, and so it's natural to love other people. On the other hand, it is difficult to love other people. Why? Because some people are annoying. Some people are needy. Some people are very cantankerous. Other people are very critical, and Peter says you need to stretch yourself when it comes to loving other people. He says, fervently love one another. Notice from the heart, don't be a hypocrite. Don't be a two-faced Christian where you tell people you love them, but behind their backs you talk about them. Why should we love, verse 23, for you have been born again? Not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring Word of God. He quotes here Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 24. He says, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall off, but the Word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the Word that was preached to you. Peter says, look, I want you to love one another as you're waiting for the return of Christ, as you're living a holy life. He says, in the body of Christ, I want you to stretch yourself to love other people. Why? He says, because you were born again. How were you born again? You were born again by the seed of God's word. You see, seed has inherent life within it. And what happens when you place seed in the soil? It produces fruit. It produces growth. Do you remember when you were little? I remember this happened to me. When you would take a pumpkin, particularly in October, and you would cut it out and you would take all those seeds. I would take sometimes a seed and put it in a little Dixie cup with dirt in it. Do you remember that as a kid and you'd put it on the windowsill? And what would happen after several days? You would notice a little plant that would sprout up. And that was so fascinating to me as a child. And Peter says this, the reason why you need to love other Christians is because when you got saved, here's what happened. God took the seed of his word he implanted it in the soil of your heart, and when it was mixed with faith, it produced the fruit of salvation. He's saying that you and I now have a new nature. We have the life of God living on the inside of us. The love of God, Romans 5, has been shed abroad in our hearts, which means this, we now have the capacity to love others the way God loves them. Albeit we're not going to do it perfectly, But I can love other people because God's word was implanted in my soul, and it produced salvation, and now I have the nature of God. Royal blood flows through my veins in one sense. God lives on the inside of me. Therefore, I can love the way God loves, and that's difficult. I was reading about a girl this week who went to work her job in the factory, and she was a Christian, and she wanted to be a witness for Jesus Christ. And so she was paired up with this girl who was very bossy, who was very critical, and who was very crude. And so she tried to love her and share the gospel with her, but this girl would often reject her and would often say crude things and nasty things. And so she went to the Lord and she said, Lord, I don't like this girl. Well, she read John chapter 13, verse 34, where Jesus said, I command you to love one another. And so she said, okay, Lord, I'll I'll try to love her. And so she went back, and she tried to love her again, but the girl was hard as a rock. And so she came back to the Lord, and she said, I can't do this, Lord. She opened up her Bible again, and it fell to John chapter 13, love one another. She said, God, I don't even like this girl. I can't stand her. Have you ever been there before where you don't like somebody in your family or maybe another Christian? So finally, under the power of the Spirit, she loved this girl and this girl finally broke and she opened up her heart to this girl and she said, let me tell you about my abusive past and what went on with me. And they became friends and she invited that girl to church and ended up leading her to Jesus Christ. Now I I realize that not everything always ends that way because sometimes it leads to a falling out. But Peter says this, the word of God which is eternal... You see, man is gonna pass away. All of man's accomplishments, he says, are gonna go. He says, but God's word is gonna last forever. And that eternal word was implanted in your soul and it produced the fruit of salvation. Now you and I have the capacity to love. Now this is relevant and here's why. A number of us can't stand the other side in terms of politics, right? And listen, there is a place to debate ideas. I disagree with Christians who say we shouldn't debate ideas. Absolutely, 100% we ought to debate ideas because the, the trajectory of our country is at stake. However, in the midst of debating ideas, we have to not forget that we're called to love whoever it is we disagree with. I have a friend, and he's told me multiple times through text messages that he is appalled at what Christians say on a lot of social media sites. Not that they debate ideas, but how denigrating and how nasty they are towards non-believers or people they disagree with politically. Disagree with them. I'm not saying we shouldn't be patriotic, but I'm simply saying this, we have to love people in Washington, we have to love people who we don't agree with. Don Lemon this week came out and said on CNN, he said Jesus was not perfect. Did you read that article this week? And so he basically posted that and some people were saying comments about this and here was my response. I said, it's not surprising that he would say that because Don Lemon's not a believer and Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 16 that non-believers look at Jesus from a worldly point of view. Read it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So I said, it doesn't surprise me he said that. I said, we need to love the lemon, because God loves lemons, and that's true, he does. We disagree with his statement, we can debate it, but we also need to love and not forget that we are called in a crazy mixed up world to love people that are different than us, We can disagree with them vigorously, but we have to be careful that we don't see them as the enemy, because the ultimate enemy is who? Is Satan. He's the God of this age, and we are fighting in our times a spiritual battle. And if we lose sight of the gospel and we lose sight of love, what's going to happen is we're going to mar our testimony in the midst of what's going on. And so Peter here is calling these believers to love others. Well, there's a fifth and final thing that he tells us to do in light of the times, and that is this, and I love this one. We need to long for the Word. We need to long for the Word. Notice what he says in chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. He says, therefore. Now, what's the therefore, therefore? Well, it takes us back to what he said about the Word of God being eternal and how it was implanted in our soul, and it produced salvation. And he says, we're to love one another. Therefore, because we're to love one another, He says, putting aside. Now, the Greek here indicates this. We are to put the following sins aside once and for all. In other words, make a decisive decision that I'm not going to live in these types of sins, but then you have to daily put them to death. So you got to initially make a decision and then you've got to ongoingly make a decision. What sins do we need to weed out of our life? Well, look what he says here. These are all relational sins that violate love. He says, lay aside malice. What is that? Having ill will towards other people, nastiness, all deceit. The word in the Greek means to bait the hook because when you go fishing, you bait the hook In order to deceive the fish. In other words, don't be a person who is deceptive. He says, lay aside hypocrisy. That means being two faced towards other people. Notice these are all relational sins because he just got done saying, love one another. He says, get rid of hypocrisy, get rid of envy, wanting what other people have, get rid of slander. We see this in the media constantly where people are being misrepresented, their characters are being assassinated. He says once and for all, put these sins to death, but then you got to do it on an ongoing basis. Why? Because they will rear their ugly head. You know what he's saying to use a gardening analogy? He's saying you got to decide that you're going to pull the weeds. Because if, if the soil is good and the seed goes in, it's going to produce fruit. But you and I know when fruit gets in there, weeds are going to crop up. And if you're going to grow, you got to daily pull the weeds of this sin. And then look what he says here. Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word. There it is right there. We are to long for the word so that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Listen, it's not enough just to pull the weeds. You got to weed and feed. You ever seen that before? When you take fertilizer, you get stuff, you put it in the ground, it kills the weeds, but it also nourishes the soil. Listen, you got to weed and feed on a daily basis. He says, if you want to grow, he uses the analogy of a newborn baby. Now, watch this picture here. In chapter one, he says, the word of God is what produces spiritual babies. You say, what do you mean? Well, when a person hears the word of God and they say, yes, Jesus, I want you as my Lord and Savior, the moment they believe, a spiritual baby is produced, right? New life is given. We understand this in the human realm. When a couple has a child, new life has been produced. But here's what Peter is saying in chapter two, that new life needs to be nourished. The Word of God not only produces spiritual babies, but it nourishes spiritual babies. That's why he says, just like a newborn baby, and the Greek word here, brephos, means an infant, an infant doesn't care about the color of its room. An infant doesn't care about the pillows and the dolls and its name on the wall. It doesn't care about the nature of the crib. What the infant cares about is milk, and if a mother doesn't give its milk, it has a conniption. If you and I are going to grow, we got to be students of the Word. And you know what that means? We got to daily weed out sin in our life, and we got to feed ourselves the Word of God, or we're not going to grow spiritually. A Christian who is not meditating on the Word of God regularly is not going to grow in their walk with God. And listen, don't just read the Bible. Yes, read it, but meditate on it, and then study it. Get beyond daily bread. Get beyond just reading a chapter a day. That's good to do. But you want to get in and study the books of the Bible. You want to learn the overview of the Bible. Because when you get the big picture, when you get the bird's eye view, the worm's eye view makes that much more sense. That's how you and I grow. Do you have a longing for God's word? There are days where I don't long for God's word. And you know what I have to do? I have to force feed myself. But you know what, when I get into the word of God, even when I force feed myself, you can't go by your emotions, God speaks to me. Some days it's more dramatic than others, but there are a lot of times where there's nothing earth shattering, but as I study the word of God, you know what it does? It renews my mind, it strengthens my heart, it helps me to pull the weeds out in my heart so that I can feed it the word of God. I was reading about a blind person who would read the Bible in Braille And they would use their fingers as blind people do in order to read. And what happened to this individual was calluses began to develop on their fingers to where they lost their sensitivity and they could not read the Word of God, where they were so grieved that one day this person started to cry. And as they were crying, they put their face on the braille. Only to realize that their lips were more sensitive than their fingers, and that person began to read the Word of God with their lips. Now listen, that is a desire for the Word. And if you want to know why you may not be growing in your walk with God, Sunday morning hearing John and I preach is not enough. It's good, but it's not enough. you got to be in the Word on a consistent basis. you got to hunger for the Word. Because if you're not hungering for the Word, I'm going to tell you this right now, you're hungering more for the world. And listen, you develop an appetite for whatever you feed yourself. If you feed yourself junk food all the time, guess what you're going to want to eat all the time? Debbie cakes, Twinkies, hamburgers, Taco Bell, all that stuff's good stuff, I agree. But listen, you don't want to live on a diet of that stuff. Why? Because whatever you feed yourself, you develop an appetite for. And so if you feed yourself the word of God, you're going to develop a greater appetite. So we're living in great times, are we not? We're living in perilous times, 2 Timothy 3 says. Christians should not walk in fear. I've struggled with that a little bit. It's like, Lord, where is this going? What's going to happen to my livelihood? What's going to happen to my family? Yesterday I went out and I bought myself a 9mm. I've already got a couple of shotguns, but I was talking to the guy who owns the gun shop, and he said that the sales have gone through the roof. They cannot keep up with the demand. You know what, be prepared, but don't walk in fear. I have to refuse fear, I'm not gonna let fear control me. We don't know all the outcomes in the near future, but I do know this, God is in control. And listen, even though I can't always trace God's hand, I can trust his heart, because God's got my best interest at heart, and therefore, don't walk in fear in light of the times we're living in. What did Peter say we are to do? Here's what we're to do, because they were dealing with a lot of the same junk that we're dealing with today. First of all, if you want to be ready, lift up praise to God for your salvation. Do that on a daily basis. Secondly, look for the coming of Christ. The rapture is imminent. Thirdly, live a life of holiness. Fourth, love others, because God has given you now the capacity to love. And then finally, you need to long for the Word of God on a regular basis. Now, in chapter 4, he's going to mention two other things. One of them is this. Serve others. Get involved. Now's the time not to sit, soaking sour. We want to get involved. Let's pray.